Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, there's a couple. All right. Well, hey, let me, uh, let me do this right away. Um, I, I need to tell you that we're going to switch gears a little bit this morning um, than what's on the schedule inside your worship guide. So this morning we were going to be out of, in a passage out of Matthew, and we're going to finish up uh, our series called um, Breaking the Chains of Dysfunction. We're going to postpone that until next week. So next week we'll wrap up the series and, and finish from there. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a twist this morning uh, because I thought it'd be kind of fun for us to look at um, some scripture in a little bit of different light. Um, and also because I think it fits well with just the season of life and season of uh, life in Denver, at least, uh, that we're all in. So if you will do me a favor, um, I want everybody to open up their Bibles to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, um, we have some that we provided. It should be underneath the seat in front of you. Page 762, if you're using one of our Bibles. Um, if, you don't wanna, if you didn't bring one, you don't want to use one of ours, uh, pull out your phone, your tablet, open up your Bible app, and open up to John chapter 6. Open up to John chapter 6. So let me do this. I want to pray for you and for me as we get started this morning, and then we'll dive right in, okay? So will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to come before you and to worship you. And Father, we thank you for uh, just the excitement that's all around us. Uh, we can't drive down the street or walk through a store or even talk to our neighbor without, um, without talking about the exciting events happening in our city. But, but Father, this morning I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to be excited about you, to be passionate about following you, to be so passionate about how you've changed our life, that, uh, that we, would, we would live out that same excitement uh, in our daily faith walk with you. And God, I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts this morning and change us so that when we walk out this morning, we're different than we walked in. Lord, we love you and pray all this in your name. Amen. So go ahead and keep opening up to John chapter 6. Um, so I am, I am a fan of the Denver Broncos. Is anybody else a fan? All right. Uh, now, I have to be honest because I'm, I'm uh, I guess I, I, I've slowly become a fan over the years. I didn't grow up in Denver. I didn't grow up in Colorado, so I didn't grow up a huge um, Bronco fan. As a matter of fact, Growing up, I was a 49ers fan, so don't boo, but I was a 49ers fan growing up. Now, I lived, I mean, the closest professional team to me uh, would have been the Dallas Cowboys. I liked the Cowboys. No, and I wasn't a Cowboys fan, so don't boo at that part. Oh, you guys. <laughs> That's worse. All right. So here, let me tell you why I was a 49ers fan, all right? Growing up, I played quarterback. I played football, and uh, that was my position for whatever reason, and it worked out. And so I was a quarterback for a long time and loved the position. Of course, like any young boy, I grew up dreaming of playing professional sports. And, and so I dreamed that I was going to be like Bo Jackson. I was going to spend half my time playing professional baseball and the other half of my time playing professional football. I, was, I had it mapped out, too. I was going to play professional baseball for the Texas Rangers, 
and I was going to play professional football for the 49ers. Now, here's why I knew it was meant to be. Because as I was growing up, of course, I loved Joe Montana, but, but, who, followed, <laughs> but who followed him was a guy named Steve Young. Now, I, I had a natural affinity for him because, obviously, same position. We played the same position. We shared the same last name. What I also found out was we shared the same birthday. So I knew it was meant to be. I was going to follow in Steve Young's footsteps and be the next quarterback of the 49ers. And um, so as a young child, I used to write letters to all of my sports heroes. And occasionally you, you get some kind of correspondence back. I wrote to Dan Marino. Dan Marino wrote me a letter back with an autographed picture. I still have it. Um, an autographed picture from Dan Marino that he sent to me uh, after writing him a letter. But despite many, many attempts, almost in a stalker way, Steve Young never wrote me back. And uh, needless to say, I never became the next quarterback of the 49ers. But I grew up a fan of the 49ers. And, and as I've moved to Colorado, I've slowly started evolving into a Broncos fan. Whereas now, I would never call myself a 49er fan. I would call myself a Broncos fan. Um, But I'm still in that process of growing up as a Broncos fan. And here's what I mean. I had to work a little bit to get my orange and blue today. All right? So I'm an Oklahoma State Cowboy fan, which means everything I own is orange and black. I have orange and black of everything but I don't have any orange and blue. So fortunately, I had the orange shirt, which actually I bought this orange shirt because I did an OSU-themed wedding uh, a number of years ago. Um, on, the, on the campus of Oklahoma State, the mascot, Pistol Pete, come, came and hung out at the wedding. It was uh, us Cowboy fans. We get a little weird, all right, with our sports. But, um, so that's why I had this really bright OSU shirt because I officiated the wedding. And then I had this navy blue tie. So, um, so I thought I'd... I'd Put it on. Now, here's what I'd also say, though. Don't get used to this. All right? Some of you wondered, does he even know how to tie one? I do. All right? But don't get used to it. I don't wear them very often. And uh, usually the only time you'll see me wearing a tie is if I marry or bury somebody you love. So, um, so enjoy it today. But uh, I think most of us in here would call ourselves a fan of the Broncos. Even if you're like me. You're a transplant to Denver or transplant to Colorado. Maybe you grew up cheering for another team. All right, Chad is clearly a Green Bay fan, but I imagine, no? Oh, the Lions, that's right, that's right. Same difference, right? They're all up north. Yeah, he's a Lions fan, but he, yeah. That's right, yeah. Marshall's the Green Bay fan, right? All right. But I can imagine, and I don't want to speak for you, but you're probably going to cheer for the Broncos today, right? You need to say that because everyone else in this room is. Um, so maybe you're like, you fall into some different categories. Um, but I think most of us would say, we're going to cheer for the Broncos. We're a fan of the Broncos because um, just being in this environment uh, so exciting and, and wants to draw you in. Uh, I, this morning, I want us to talk about being a fan of Christ and what that means and what that looks like. But, but more than that, I want us to look at um, what, what it takes and what it looks like to go beyond just being a fan. And so I want you to open up your Bibles, hopefully you've already got them open there, to John chapter 6. Now if you've been with us for a while, 
in July and August, and I think even into September, we walked through the book of John looking at the seven miracles or the seven signs that Christ performed in the book of John. And their miracles, that's what we usually call them, John, who's the author, always refers to them as signs. Because to him, it's more than just a miraculous act. It's a sign. Every time Jesus did something miraculous, it was a sign to point us to a deeper and greater understanding of who he is. Now, chapter 6 is a really big and important chapter. As a matter of fact, we spent two weeks in July just in chapter 6 alone. Uh, talking about some of the big, most popular, most well-known miracles um, performed by Christ during his ministry, uh, which take place in chapter 6. But what we didn't do is we didn't finish chapter 6, and I want us to do that this morning. Um, so let me back up and take you to, to what's happened in chapter 6. Uh, at the beginning, uh, here's, here's what it says. I'm going to read just verse 1 for you. Uh, And hopefully you're following along in your Bible. Verse 1 of John chapter 6. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. A lot of times when we think of Christ, we think of 12 guys, maybe a few others, following him around everywhere he went. But the reality is, Thousands of people follow Jesus everywhere. And you can imagine why. Uh, You can imagine your small town of 300 people, most of whom are related. You know everything about everyone, and you've spent generations together. And this man walks into your town. And he tells your brother or your uncle or your cousin or your best friend who was born blind And he says, open your eyes. And you get to see the expression on your loved one's face when they see colors for the first time. They grew up hearing about what colors were like. They grew up feeling what a tree felt like, but always wondered what it really looked like. And you got to be there for for that moment when their eyes opened and they saw the world for the first time. And then Jesus goes to the next small town. And he walks in to a house where a little girl has been just pronounced dead. And Jesus says, don't be so upset, she's not dead. And he tells her to get up, and she does. The thrill and the excitement and the celebration of the whole town. Because what has been a tragedy was just turned into a victory. A guy who's walking around your town, like, and you're hearing all these stories, you're going to go out and see him. You're going to go see what he's going to do next. Maybe you have a problem. Maybe you're sick, or a loved one's sick, or you're hungry, or in need, or hurting, or poor, or oppressed. Maybe you're the one who needs help, or maybe you just want to see what he's going to do next. Everywhere Jesus went, Thousands of people followed him. And here it says Jesus pulls up on one particular side of the Sea of Galilee. And there immediately a large crowd begins to form. 
And you can imagine the conversation going on in the crowd. What's he going to do next? What's going to happen now? What's he going to teach now? So Jesus begins teaching these people. The day goes long. The disciples actually start telling Jesus, hey, Jesus, it's been a great sermon, but it's probably time to let people go home and get dinner. And Jesus said, if they're hungry, then feed them. Whoa, Jesus, there's, there's, there's 5,000 men here. That's what the Bible says, there were 5,000 men. It doesn't tell us how many women and children were there as well. And you know this story. It's one of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever performed. It's the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. And Jesus takes a few loaves of bread and a few fish and feeds the entire crowd. And the Bible says, until everyone ate their full. This wasn't just everyone got a snack. This was Thanksgiving dinner. Everyone ate till they were full. Maybe upwards of 20,000 people got all they could eat. Part of why this story is so popular and why it appears in all four Gospels is because this is speaking to a hungry world. To a large group of people who go day and day and day hungry and to know that there was a man who could do something like this so after doing ministry all day teaching feeding these people jesus retreats by himself to get a little alone time for some prayer and reflection and he sends his disciples on ahead of him he tells them i want you to get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea of galilee i'll, I'll catch up with you later so Jesus retreats, hides out for a little while, and then as the disciples are rowing their boat across the Sea of Galilee, a huge storm develops. And what you got to remember is that half of these men were professional fishermen. Half of these men were the guys who, a, a storm on the sea is just a part of everyday life. But they began to grow even a little scared. It was a big storm. And in the middle of the night, they see a shadow. They see a figure. They see something out on the water. And it creates even more scare, more fright. Jesus calms them. And if you remember, Jesus, in the middle of the night, despite the storm, walks on the water to meet his disciples. Peter, being Peter, says, all right, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come out there. Jesus says, all right, Peter, come on. Peter takes a few steps, gets scared, begins to sink, and of course, we know the story. Jesus saves him. And then they get into the boat and arrive on the other side, and that's where we're going to pick up our story. And so that's the context of what's just taken place. Two of, two of some of the biggest miracles that we think of that have happened in Jesus' life have just taken place in the last 12 hours. Jesus has ministered to maybe, maybe 20,000, maybe 25,000, who knows, people for the last day and a half. He hasn't had a wink of sleep. And he's always dealing with 
disciples who are somewhat doubting and somewhat difficult. And so we're going to pick up the story, and we're going to pick it up in John chapter 6, verse 25. So if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 6, verse 25. And so this is, at, this is morning of the next day when the disciples get to the other side and Jesus get to the other side the Sea of Galilee. And here's what it says in verse 25. When they okay, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And so this is talking about the crowd. So just as Jesus pulls up, all of a sudden there's a huge crowd there waiting. Now we didn't read this, but just before that, the Bible tells us that that later on, after Jesus had fed everyone and sent them home, and he had gone to be by himself, they started looking for Jesus again, but they couldn't find him. But they did notice that the disciples' boat had already taken off. So all the crowd, get, they get in their boats, and they go to meet Jesus on the other side. Plus, all the people who live on the other side of the Sea of Galilee who are there to welcome Jesus as he arrives. And then you notice almost how surprised they sound in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? You can imagine the way they're trying to talk to Jesus. Like, Jesus, what a coincidence. It's so funny that you're here this morning. It's so funny that we ran into you. It's What a coincidence. But Jesus knows better. And he says this in verse 26, And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has sent his seal. So Jesus calls them out right away. They try to act surprised. Oh man, Jesus, it's so good to see you. It's so funny that we ran into you this morning. And Jesus says, let's cut it out. We all know why you're here. You're not here to see me. You're here because you got full last night. And now you're hungry again you got all the fish sandwiches you could eat yesterday and now you're ready for breakfast burritos let's not lie we we all know why you're here so jesus cuts right to the chase now here's how they respond then they said to him what must we do to be doing the works of god so this is classic all right, person who's in need, who's trying to manipulate. So they're going to switch tactics. At first they tried to make everything seem like a coincidence, like this just happened to be perfect timing. It's just so unusual and random that we ran into you at breakfast time. Isn't that funny, Jesus? And he calls them out on it. Listen, we know why you're here. This isn't coincidence. You're hungry again. That's why you're here. So then they want to switch tactics real quick. And get spiritual. So what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, we're going to switch. If he wants, you know, he wants to be Mr. Religious Guy, we'll, we'll switch our tactics too. 
Jesus knows where they're going. He's two steps ahead of them the whole way. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. So this isn't working, so they're going to try, try it from another angle. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So now they're going to switch it up. Now they're getting desperate because Jesus isn't playing their game anymore. And so they say, oh, Jesus, it's so funny to see you and it doesn't work. Okay, okay, let's just act like we want to have some religious conversation. Maybe while he's teaching, he'll, he'll, he'll set out the food while he goes on, a, on his sermon. Jesus just answers them, if you want to do God's will... You believe in who he sent. So they're going to switch tactics again. They say, oh, so we're supposed to believe in you. That's the whole key to all this. Okay, so what can you do? What can you do for us? What kind of sign could you do for us so we have a reason to believe? Now, just stop and think about the absurdity of that question. The whole reason there was a crowd of 5,000 men, maybe 15, 20, 25,000 people in front of Jesus the other day was because they had seen all the signs. That's why they were there in the first place. And then Jesus even tells them and calls them out at the very beginning when he gets off the boat the next morning, you're here because you got full last night and now you're hungry again. You see, they're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to manipulate him to do what they want. Okay, Jesus, okay, okay. We'll believe in you, but you got to help us here, right? What kind of sign can you do so that we could believe? What kind, of, what kind of miracle could you do for us that would help us to believe so that we could have this faith? Because we really want to believe Jesus, but we just need some help here. You know, we just got to, if I could see a miracle... Then I'd believe. And then notice the example they give. Because you do remember Moses, who is, is like one of the top three or four members of their faith hall of fame. I mean, I mean Moses and King David are like at, at the top of the Jewish hall of fame. And so they, they refer to the really popular guy. You remember Moses, don't you, Jesus? Because if, if we don't, if we're not mistaken, he, he fed our ancestors in the wilderness. So what do you say, Jesus? What can, what can you do? What kind of sign can you perform? I mean, Moses fed us. Moses did it. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So Jesus says, listen, it was not Moses who provided for your ancestors in the wilderness. He may have been your leader. He may have been there. But you know that it was God from heaven who provided that bread. But that's not what you should be worried about. 
What you need to focus is not on bread that doesn't last. You need to focus on bread that won't ever perish. You need to focus on the bread that comes from heaven and gives you real life. So you can almost see the people getting excited. Sweet. We're getting an upgrade today. We're not getting fish sandwiches today. Today, Jesus is going to give us a magical bread. All right, Jesus, that's what we want. What you're talking about, that's what we want. Don't give us, don't give us that old, cheap, poor man's bread you gave us yesterday. We want that real stuff from heaven that you're talking about. Yes, that's what we want, Jesus. That's what we're looking for. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus looks at this crowd who's, who's begging for more. Jesus, give us something more. Give us something better. Jesus says there's something that comes from heaven that'll give you life, that'll give you real life, that'll give you eternal life. And the crowd begins demanding, that's what we want, Jesus. Give us that. And he looks at him and says, I am. I am the bread of life. It's me. I'm the one who came from heaven to give you life. The bread that came during Moses' time, it gave temporary life. It just kept people alive for one more day. And then they had to gather more of it the next day, and more of it the next day, and more of it the next day. And it gave temporary life, but I'm here to give eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the gift from heaven that came to give you life. And anyone who will believe in me, will have eternal life. This was not what the crowd wanted to hear. This is not what they were interested in. So they begin to grumble. Who is this man? Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is trying to judge us? Who does he think he is trying to tell us that he's the gift from heaven? That he's supposed to be the bread of life? That we're supposed to find life in him? Who does he think he is? But Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts and in their minds and these whispering conversations amongst the crowd. And so he's going to respond to him, even though they don't ask him 
very many direct questions about it. Verse 47, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one... so that. One may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52 The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, so so Jesus is going to reiterate, listen, you don't get it. I am the bread. Your ancestors are dead. Have you noticed? All those people who got fed from bread that God provided in the wilderness, they're all dead now. The bread kept them alive for a while. But eventually they died. What I'm talking about is a different kind of bread and a different kind of life. I'm talking about something that will change your life completely. Something that will give you eternal life. It's not made from wheat and flour. This bread that will give you eternal life is my flesh. So you can just feel the atmosphere in the crowd. I mean, things just got weird. Things got awkward. I mean, anytime somebody says, my flesh is the bread that will give you eternal life, is going to cause you to pause. But even more than that, for Jews, for Jews they, they couldn't eat flesh. I mean, they had very strict diet rules. They couldn't even eat meat that still had blood in it. And there were only certain kinds of meat that they could eat. And certainly, humans weren't on that list. I mean, this got weird for them. What is he talking about? What what is Jesus trying to say to us? In no way does this make any sense. In verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood... You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So people don't understand and they're getting confused and they're not particularly happy. And and Jesus pushes even further. Jesus is going to prod them even more and say, listen, if if you're unwilling to eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have no part of me. Now obviously what we know is that Jesus never had the intention of anyone eating his physical flesh or drinking his physical blood at the last supper 
just a matter of hours before he would be arrested. Jesus took a piece of bread that for 2,000 years had been a symbol. For 2,000 years, while Jews celebrated the Passover feast, they would take this bread and this cup, and there were some other elements as a part of the supper, but the whole supper was to remember the day that God and His judgment passed over the Jews. And, and they were protected. While the Egyptians, who had enslaved the Israelite people, were not saved. They were not spared. And, and do you remember in Exodus when this whole event took place? The difference between those who were spared judgment and death and those who were not? God had given everyone a symbol. He said, take some lamb's blood and paint it over the doorpost of your house. And when the death angel comes, anyone who has the lamb's blood painted over the doorpost of their house, the death angel will pass over that house. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. And for 2,000 years, they celebrated that event in the Passover feast. And while having Passover with his disciples, Jesus took the bread and told them, this doesn't represent when that event took place that saved the Israelite people now this bread represents my flesh. And then he took the cup and he says, this cup now represents my blood. And every time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember what I've done for you. And so now, when we take what's called communion, or the Lord's Supper, or depending on your background, you may have called it the Eucharist. When we do that, we take the bread and we take the juice. Knowing that when we eat and drink, we're honoring and remembering the sacrifice that Christ made for us. The breaking of His body and the spilling of His blood. But just like in this story, eating Jesus' physical flesh and drinking His physical blood wouldn't have brought any salvation or eternal life to anyone. In the same way, eating a bite of the bread and taking a drink of the juice in no way saves anyone in this room. You can take the Lord's Supper for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day of your life. And it brings no eternal life or salvation. What brings eternal life is what we believe about the Lord's Supper. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave His life on the cross for us. Through the spilling of His blood, he purchased what we couldn't earn on our own. And when we believe in Him and what He's done for us, that's when we find eternal life. The Lord's Supper is a reminder. It forces us to stop and reflect, to examine our own lives. Am I living in such a way that's, that's worthy of this supper that I'm about to take that remembers and honors the sacrifice of Christ? What did Jesus even say to the crowd earlier? 
said, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. But now Jesus is pushing, and he's pushing hard. Because see, the crowd is looking for something, and they're not getting what they want. And Jesus keeps pushing. And he finally looks them in the eyes and says, if you aren't willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you don't have any part of me. He's pushing. He's pushing. He's pushing. The crowd's looking for something, and they're not getting it. And he's pushing. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, this is not just talking about the 12. We often think of the 12 disciples. This is talking about those who follow Jesus regularly. So you've got the big crowd of what? Maybe 20,000, 25,000 people who just randomly show up all the time. And then you even have a crowd of hundreds, maybe even a few thousand of people who follow Jesus everywhere he goes. Now we focus mostly on the 12 and the ones that Jesus really poured into and prepared to start the church after his life but but this is talking to a lot more about a lot more than just the 12 and it says when many of his disciples heard it they said this is a hard saying who can listen to it Even for just beyond the crowd, even for those who knew Jesus better and those who had followed him somewhat, those who had been a part of his regular traveling schedule, not just the ones who wanted breakfast, but even those who had been around for a little while started going, wow, this isn't what we expected this morning. Wow, this this is not easy to sit and listen to. Verse 66 may be one of, one of the most impactful verses of Scripture for me personally over the course of my life. Because we don't ever talk about it and we often don't think about it. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And this brings power to this whole story. Verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? The, the people weren't getting what they wanted. They were looking for Jesus to just make them happy, make them, make them satisfied, make them comfortable. Just give me what I want, Jesus. And sometimes Jesus gave it. Sometimes he fed the whole crowd. Sometimes he did signs that that blew everyone's mind. Sometimes he said things and taught things that that blew people's minds, that challenged traditional systems and helped bring freedom for individuals and groups. But here, Jesus isn't going to play any games. He's not going to be anyone's puppet. And they try to push and push. So Jesus pushes back. 
They're just looking for a free meal and a free ride. Jesus says, if you want me, if you want the free ride, you have to get me. If you want the meal, it comes through me. And that's not easy. Anybody can hold out their hand and get a gift. But if you want something real, if you want something lasting, it comes through me. And that's not easy. Jesus pushes back. He challenges them in ways that he knows they weren't wanting or ready to be challenged. In verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Can you almost picture it? Standing on the shore. I mean, the mood of the crowd has taken a drastic turn in the last 10 minutes. It went from elated excitement and even a little quiet celebration when Jesus pulled up on shore because they knew we're getting breakfast. And now it's moved to a point that a lot of people are just going, you know, this was fun. This is a little more than I was willing to give. This is not what I thought this was going to be. You know, Jesus is a great guy. He's a great teacher. He can do some cool things, but I'm not interested in what he's talking about. And you just see the crowd start to thin out. All these people walking back home, people going and getting back in their boats going, I don't know. This is not what I signed up for. In verse 67, Jesus turns and he looks at his 12. So now we know exactly who he's talking to. The guys that sit around the campfire with him every night. The guys who he's always taken off to the side and teaching them extra lessons and, and helping to prepare them for what's to come. And he looks at the 12 and he says, do you want to go too? This is your chance, boys. You want out too? 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He looks at the 12 and says, so what is it, boys? Are you out too? Is this more than you can handle? Is this more than you signed up for? And Simon Peter, who's generally the spokesman for the 12, steps up and he says, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go, Jesus? We know too much. We've seen too much. Because we've believed and we've come to know that you're exactly who you say you are. That you are the Holy One of God. That you are the one who's been sent from heaven. That you are the one who gives eternal life. Where are we going to go, Jesus? You want me to go back to fishing? What is Matthew supposed to do? Go back to collecting taxes? We know too much, Jesus. We know too much. There's... There's no turning back for us now. See, on that day, there were 25,000 fans of Christ. But there were very few followers. 
there's a lot of die-hard Broncos fans in Denver. There's no doubt about that. But there's a whole lot of us wearing orange and blue these last couple of weeks that we don't normally wear. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's fun. I'm excited about the game today. I know most of you are too. I think it's good for us to be excited. I think it's good for us to do some new things for Eddie to wear orange. But it's just a game. There are some diehard followers who will go drive across the country to watch the Broncos play for 60 minutes. And there's some of us who will don the orange and blue on Sundays or Saturdays. And after we win today, we'll wear it for a couple more weeks. But, I mean, by July, we're not going to wake up in the morning and go, how can I put a Broncos outfit together out of this? We're fans. We cheer while they're playing. But none of us will wake up on any given morning in July thinking about how to support the Broncos. We'll save it for September. There's a lot of fans of Christ. According to research and polls, it's about 80% of our country. About 80% of our country would say, I'm a fan of Christ. I like him. He's a good guy. He said some good things. He did some good things. Some of them would even say, he's a way to get to heaven. But there's very few who will really embrace the teachings of Christ. There's not nearly as many as who will say he's the only way. No matter how offensive or politically incorrect it may be, he's the only way. There's not nearly as many people who will say, I'll follow him and do whatever he asks, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what it looks like. There's very few who will say, I just know too much to turn back. I've just seen and experienced too much that no matter what the cost, I could never turn back. It's good to be a fan of the Broncos. It's appropriate. Jesus is not looking for fans. Jesus is looking for passionate, committed, fully devoted followers. Those who will go anywhere and do anything. Not just someone who will wave a Jesus flag when it's convenient. Or when it works out well. Or when they have no other options and they're hoping Jesus will come to their rescue. Jesus isn't looking for fans. Because one day... All of us are going to worship Him. The Bible says in several places that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It doesn't matter what you believe about Him today. One day we'll all do it. When we see Jesus for who He is and we see and understand His glory and His power, 
we won't have a choice then. We'll all worship. We'll all be fans of Him then. But what matters is, are we following Him now? Have we, have we been able to come to the place where we say, His flesh and His blood is what I need? Not through a symbolic act, not through eating or consuming something, but in a belief and a trust in who He is and what He's done for me. That's what I need. And I'll go anywhere, do anything because of it. Because His flesh and His blood have changed my life. Because I've seen and I've experienced too much to turn back now. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank You for this opportunity to worship You. Father, I pray that... um, Lord, that we would just take this opportunity to examine our own hearts and our own lives. I imagine that probably everyone, myself included, in this room can can stop and think in this moment of some areas of our life that maybe we're not fully committed in. Maybe we can think of, of ways in which we, we don't do a great job at just reckless abandoning, uh, in, a, in a reckless abandonment following you. And, and Lord, I pray that this would be a moment for us to stop and to reflect, allow you to speak to us. Allow you to mold and shape and change us. I want you to keep your eyes closed for just a minute. Sometimes when we talk about subjects like this, there's a tendency, we have a tendency to feel as though um, our relationship with God is based on our performance. You know, if I do a really good job of following Jesus, I'm real bold about it, I'm real courageous about it, then... And that's, that's what I need. That's, that's good. I'm good with God. And then there's those of us who are feeling really guilty right now. Maybe, maybe there's not a lot of courage, a lot of boldness in the way we follow Christ. Maybe there, there's just a lot of areas in our life where we really struggle with following Christ. And, and we start to feel so guilty that, that maybe we wonder if we're just a fan and not a follower. And here's what I want to assure you. And the Bible teaches this over and over and over and over that that following Christ is a result of a changed heart does not produce a changed heart. So I want you to know today that if maybe you're struggling in some areas that God is not looking down with complete disappointment Going, if you don't fix that, then your eternity's at stake. That's not how it works. What happens is we place our faith and our trust in who Christ is and what He's done. And as that changes us, it changes us from the inside out. 
that commitment and that belief. And you could hear it in Peter's words today when he said, we have, come, we have believed and we have come to know. You see, even for the disciples, there was a process of change. We have come to know. And you've committed your life to Christ and you are passionately uh, all about believing in Him and trusting Him, but there's still some work to be done. And, and what's changed on the inside is still trying to work its way on the outside. And, and I hope today would be an encouragement for you that you could walk away being certain that God loves you and has saved you and that He's going to, to help you work those out. But it is an important issue. On the other hand, what I don't want to happen is for anybody who may just happen to be a type A, very disciplined person who gets a lot of things right to think that your actions are all you need. Just because you don't drink or smoke and just because you read a Bible every day doesn't make you saved. Doesn't, make, doesn't mean you have eternal life. Being a committed follower of Christ should be an outflow of a changed heart. And what brings us eternal life is what we believe about Christ. And so don't let your good works mask what's really in your heart. Be able to be honest with yourself this morning. Lord, continue to move. Continue to change.